Welcome, George. How are you? Where's your big? I'm excited. To, you You're know. welcome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Brady Boy, to another episode of Float Your Boat. How are you today? I'm great, and yourself? I'm very well, thank you very much. I I have a like a like today's a, a quite a momentous occasion. Um, from the perspective that we've never had a, um, a, an interview with a person over the age of 100. And today we've got a, a gent that's 105, is that right? No, 102. 102. Arthur, Arthur Leggett was born in 1918 and um, he'll share his story of, uh, of his life and also paint a picture of what Australia was like back, uh, back during the Depression and pre-war years and um, share his story about... Uh, his experiences in North Africa and, and Greece uh, during the, the, the failed, um, you know, defence of Greece and, uh, and uh, his history from that point onwards. Um, uh, quite a remarkable gentleman. I've had, the, I've had the, um, you know, the pleasure of, of um, having several phone conversations with him. He's now living in a retirement home out at Western Australia in Perth. He's pretty bloody sharp, I've got to tell you. Uh, he's sharp. He's, 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 um, he has all his faculties. He, he can remember dates and names and uh, mm, mm. He's, he's pretty good. Um, Why? Well, and you'll notice in this interview that I barely say, I, I didn't say anything because I thought it best that you lead the interview completely um, mm. so he didn't get confused or anything like that. But halfway through I thought, Jesus, I don't think he would get confused. In fact... You and I are more confused <laughs> than I these. I know. If only, if only we were we were as sharp even at our age. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I have a fondness. I have a fondness for people like Arthur. I, there's one of those. Uh, it's one of those things about. Uh, I'm sure you share it, Brett. It's one of those things about um, you know, delving into the living history of of um, of Australia, and especially from blokes who are you know representative of you know the old the old way of being they're just down to earth and you know can spin a good story and then they you know they don't embellish anything it's just what's so and and um you know they they had a very hard but matter of fact approach to to life and they were exceedingly resilient yeah he's resilient he the thing that struck me most was that he just got on got on with it he accepted the situation Mm -hmm. and it's a good lesson for everybody, I think, is I think the reason he is where he is at 102 years old is because he's remained busy and he's given back to the country, to people, yep. to the community, everybody, yep. you know. Yep. Um, and I think that that's, that's a big part of, you know, why he's still sharp and he's 102 and, and uh, you know, still going. Yeah, Brad. He, he he represents an era when when you know, like I said, uh, like you like you said, um, he just got on with it, and people just did back then. I I I remember I remember when uh, when I w- went to Sydney University, I joined the Sydney University Regiment, and we're talking about the mid eighties, nineteen eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, and I had to chaperone World War One diggers um, on Anzac Day. Mm. And I'll never forget. I never forget my f- the first time I met a World War One digger that I had to chaperone. His name was Bert. I think he was eighty eight years old. And um, and and Bert was 
very matter of fact, bone dry, great sense of humour, knockabout larrikin, even at 88. And, um, and uh, his life was bloody hard. Mm, mm. But he just, but just like all of them, didn't say too much, didn't, didn't, didn't uh, moan about it. And it was just like we got on with it. Well, one of my favourite books was uh, A Fortunate Life by, yes. um, a, is it A.B. Facey? I think his name was, you know, that story is just horrendous really and for him yeah. to be as happy and as mm. fortunate, um, it puts all of us soft cocks to shame, I hate to say it. Um, and I think we're breeding a lot more of that these days. Yeah. So it's a good, a great podcast episode for us and for everybody out there to have a listen to what these these guys went through to give us the freedom we have. And without further ado, let's get Mr. Arthur Leggett. Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Uh, Arthur, Arthur, good morning. Good morning, Arthur. It's George Savados here. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, George. Yes. I've got. Uh, I've also got Brett on the line. Hi, Arthur. How are Brett, you? Is it? Yeah, Brett. 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 Brett Pattinson. Yeah. Nice to hear you, Brett. Yep. Thanks, Arthur. Good to hear your voice too. Now, yeah. now, Arthur, how's the sound? He. He. It, it's Brett, not Bert. Brett. Brett. Rex. No, 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 no. Bravo, Romeo, Echo, Tango, Tango. Brett. That's, That's the it. one. Yeah, you got well, it. we made it. Good. <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> but you can call me whatever you like, Arthur. You can call me anything. Yeah, no, Brett, good enough. Yeah. So, uh, Arthur, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for, your, for your time today. We, uh, we, we haven't quite started. Brett's going to... Brett's gonna, um, you know, let us know when we're uh, when the tape is rolling. We're good to I go. See. Fair we're, enough. We're good to go. I just wanted to welcome you, Arthur, to uh, to our podcast, uh, Float Your Boat. I hope um, I hope that the next hour or so floats your boat, Arthur. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about um, you know uh, your current situation and we'll roll back time to, to when you were born and, and how, uh, how you, you know, the, how you grew up and, uh, and what you did. Uh, I understand that you single handedly won the war in, uh, in, in, uh, well, that's certainly what you can claim because I don't think any of your mates would uh, tell you otherwise. They're probably long gone, right? Yeah, right. Well, working backwards, uh, I'm in a retirement village. I've got my own unit, and I look after myself. And uh, but I've got a very good family, very large family. There's about thirty of us 
five generations of us at the moment. Mm. And uh, I, well, another week and I'll be 102 years old. And uh, that's the starting point. We So we work backwards, all right. Where do we go from here? Well, let, let me tell, let me ask you, Arthur, do, do, uh, do you have um, any old mates still alive? Uh, well, I'm afraid not. They've, they've just about all gone. And um, we had a gathering at the State War Memorial uh, to com- to commemorate VJ Day, and uh, there was only two of us there. Wow. So uh, two of us old fellows that were actually there. Yeah, so I'm afraid they're just about all gone. Mm. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm the president of the Ex-Prisoners of War Association, but we've got about five members, I think, at the moment. Well, so you're flush with cash, are you? Uh, I wouldn't say it's flush with cash, but uh, I got a pension that meets my needs anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, that, 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 that's that's good, Arthur. Let's get let's go back to um, when you were born, 102 years ago. It's uh, quite some time, actually. It's a what, different era. But what date was that, Arthur? What date were you born? Uh, it was on the 8th of September, 1918. Wow. Yes, it was quite a good day, actually. <laughs> for your mum and dad, that's for sure. Yeah. No, we're living up in New South Wales at Moree uh, at the time. Really? Uh, but my dad had been in the First World War and he had bad lungs. He got caught in a gas attack. And we're living up in Moree to try and get the fresh air and so on. It was a dry air to help him. You know, he's lungs a bit. And, uh, and I was well, born in Manly, and but we lived up in Moree from the early days of my youth. Hmm. Well, I, I take it that uh, both Manly and and Moree would have been. I mean, Moree still pretty much scrub, but but Manly would have been scrub back then as well, right? Oh gosh, yes. Us kids, we used to just go around to. Uh, just around the harbour a bit, bit and pitched tents and camped there over over the weekend. We we're only 10, 12 years of age, but you could do that in those days. Yeah. yeah. But you, you obviously you obviously uh, just used whatever materials you had just to camp out. I mean, what did you... You didn't have the full set of camping gear like people have these days. Oh, no. Most of it would be tin stuff. We're only kids, of course, but Oh, we'd have a few sausages and cook up a few potatoes and things like that and mash up the fudge. I remember it well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just uh, and French's. Yeah, we used to camp out in the forest, French's forest adjacent to Manly and Balgala. Hmm. Have you been? Have you been out that way lately? It's not. It's not bush anymore. Oh no, no. I was up there a couple of years back. As a matter of fact, we were having a family gathering here for some reason, and I just casually mentioned I'd like to see Manly again someday, I suppose. And then the, my two grandsons and my uh, granddaughter, they take their annual holidays and took me off to Manly for a week. And how, how was that for you? Arthur? Oh, you that was yourself? quite nice. It was just the same Manly itself hasn't changed a great deal as the surrounding country that has mm. where where we had bush 
to play around in at all houses, of course. The, the old ocean beach and the harbour beach, they're all the same. Hmm. Let, let, let's go back. Let's go back to Moree. I mean, what was life like growing up in Moree at the time? That would have been what around the nineteen. You would have. How far back can you remember, Arthur? Oh, that was about. Uh, let me see. I was ten, eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. And uh, uh, well, the main thing I remember about Moree is the heat and the flies, and the shortage of water. Yeah, right. Uh, it's kept, well, Maury's built around the Mi'i River, and it never, it only flowed once in the five years that I can remember living there. And, uh, but it had uh, one main street and uh, several uh, other streets running parallel to it, of course. And, uh, the main uh, highway to uh, Queensland was through the main street. Well, the last time I was there uh, in my camper van, all the heavy traffic going to Queensland went straight up through the main street of Maureen. It was a bit uh, bit noisy there. But when we were kids, well, you could, you could walk along the street. There was horses and carts and things like that. So there was... Um, it was a good place, though, for a kid to live, for sure. It, it all was, the kids, all the kids were running around doing doing their own stuff after school. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. So, so what did your what did your uh, parents do for a living uh, at, at the time, Arthur? Because that would have been right in the middle of the depression. Is that correct? Or uh, no, this would be uh, yes. It would have been pretty well round about then, but. Uh, my dad was a very skilled uh, uh, boot maker and boot and shoe repairer. And, right. of course, people used to get their boots and shoes repaired in those days. And uh, yeah. he had a shop in Moree in the main street. And I know he had two two men working for him as well as himself. And uh, dad did fairly well during those bad years. Is that right? So, so just paint paint a picture of of um you know what uh, how people lived back then i take it that uh, you you weren't having daily showers back then um, no we no we had a bath once a week and um in the bathroom i know the place where we were the uh, we had a bathroom and dad had a pipe running from the drainage of the bathtub out into the back to try and water the garden but Unfortunately, the bathtub was pretty low down, and there wasn't much pressure, and the water just sort of trickled out of these out of these uh, pipes that he laid around. And I'm afraid it wasn't very successful. There wasn't a great deal of, of uh, motorised traffic around. There was a few chaps that had motor cars, and of course there was a couple of taxis there, but. All the male population were, were rather sick men. They'd all come home from a war, and uh, their health was not the best. And all, all the time I was growing up, my father was slowly dying, and uh, 
he died from the effects of the First World War long in the prisoner war camp in the Second War. So you wonder how women carry on. So, sorry, Arthur, you said the prisoner war camp in the Second War. Did your dad serve in, in both wars, did he? No, no. My dad, uh, while I was in a prisoner war camp. Oh, oh whilst you were there. Okay. My father it. died from the first the effects of the First War back here in Australia. Yeah. And, and 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 how did you um how did you receive that news uh, Arthur because you were I mean we're getting ahead of the story here but you were obviously in a prisoner of war camp at the time how did you get the news Oh well, Germany was a signatory of the Geneva Conventions and the International Red Cross uh, got us occasional letters they're very rare but they did come through Got it Got it. So, so, so there were like all you remember of the, your dad's generation is that they they all had um, various uh, issues. Oh health, yes, yes, health issues. Yes, wow. I did. And 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 could you say could you say that that was um, um, you know even outside of Moree that, that that was the typical story? I would say so because in due course uh, we moved down to Manly. And we lived there for five years, and then when I was 14, we came across to Western Australia, but all his mates were sick men, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, so, so when, so I say, when, I look back, and I, I can see now, well, they, they were all sick men. I didn't know it then, but yeah. I know it now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I... I We'll get on to your experiences uh, during during the, the the next war, but uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, it obviously wasn't as bad as what your dad experienced, but or maybe maybe, but we'll get on to that. When you went to Perth, um, Arthur, what what happened next? Were you were you still at school, or or did you go off and and uh, find some work somewhere, or or uh, or uh, what happened? Well, the situation was with the family. Uh, when my dad came out from England about 1910, he came out with three sisters, and they settled down in Perth. Oh, right. And uh, as dad wasn't getting any better, mum thought it would be a good idea for him to for us to come to Perth so that he could be with his family. And uh, so at the age of 14, we, we immigrated across to Perth. And because uh, I had to get a job, uh, at 14, you could leave school, and you well, you just had to leave school and try and find a job to help support the family. And I got a job as a messenger boy in Perth City, and I didn't even know the name of the streets or anything. I had quite a quite a battle there, and uh, but um, I was uh, there about ten months working for this firm, and I eventually had to produce my birth certificate. And uh, they had to pay me uh, an extra two shillings and sixpence a week because I'd put my age back to get the job. So they dispensed with my services. And I finished up on a farm. And I was on a farm for about 10 months, but it was a bad year. There was a drought, and so they had to let me go. And so, so how did you make how did you make do, Arthur? I mean, really, you you, you didn't have any uh, income, you didn't have a job, uh, and you were the 
you were the man of the house, so to speak. Is that right? Well, no, Dad was still around, but uh, Dad had given up boot making and repairing. It was just too much. And he got a job way out in the Never Never at a place called Laverton, uh, which is in well out beyond Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, where it's um, desert country, but he got a job there as a hospital orderly, and a job became vacant on the dairy. They broke there running the dairy out of town, looking for a young fellow to help. So I went up there uh, working on this dairy, mm-hmm. and uh, to be near Dad, was, of course. And Well, then Dad was sent back to Perth. The doctor there at the hospital sent Dad down to a uh, sanitarium here in Perth. And after about six months, uh, mum said, you better come home. I don't like you up there on your own. I was only 16 at the time. Mum yeah. kept boarders in her place, and one of them was a, a boilermaker welder working on a structural steel job. They were putting additions to the powerhouse then and back in '36, And... Uh, it got me a job as a river peter, and I worked for that firm right up until the time I enlisted. A, a, a rivet heater? Yeah. Wow, that must have been hard work, uh, Arthur. Well, well, it was work, work for kids, for the like way. The three men make up a team. There's the, the uh, tradesman who knocks down, who has a pneumatic gun <coughs> to knock down the real shape up the rivets. There's a fellow who has to back up the river so that they stay in the hole, and then my job is to heat them. Right. And, and what what um, I mean, what were you heating them with? Just, uh, oh, I had a little forge with a little hand uh, handle on it and turned yeah. the handle, and the air blew through the forge and heated them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Good night. Did you enjoy that work, Arthur? Oh, that got nothing to do with it. You had a job. <laughs> it wasn't enjoying. It was a bit yeah, but you had to get on with it. I went on with it, but I gradually got a job as timekeeper and job coster out on the the firm worked quite a lot around the place. They also had structural steel work thirty mile out of town. They were building a new airport out there or a new aerodrome for the air force. Building the hangars, and well, my job was job coster and uh, timekeeper and all that sort of installment. And so, uh, so, th- so this time, th- th- these these years that you're you're speaking of, Arthur, they were after the depression, yes, and into the 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 1930s, the, towards the late 1930s. Is that correct? Yes, they were, but. Um, Perth was a good bush town in those days, and there wasn't a great deal of work around at all. And you just grabbed a job where you could and go on to it. So, what did you what did you do for for um, well after work for entertainment for um, oh well the time. There was movie pictures. You always go to the movie pictures. A night's entertainment, and of course, as a teenager, I used to go dancing every Saturday night. Uh, I had a sister who was only 
20 months younger than me, and we were real close to each other. We used to go off to dances together and things of that nature. In those days, of course, uh, women dressed in evening dresses, full-length evening dresses, and you had to wear a suit before you got into a dance hall. It was quite a dignified affair. Mm -hmm. So you were pretty good at, um, at moving around on the dance floor. How did you learn how to dance, Arthur? Oh, by going. You, you pick it up because you're only, you're only a kid. You pick things up quick when you're a kid. Nothing can go wrong. And uh, my sister used to coach me. And, and uh, Lovely. between us, we made out all right. Lovely. Did you did you ever end up with a a, a girlfriend back in those days, Arthur, or, or uh, that was a yeah, no, I had a girlfriend. Uh, oh yes, yeah, so, uh, for about eighteen, I yeah picked up a girlfriend, and uh, we 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 were good mates for about three years. And because when the war broke out, I I was gone. But uh, yeah, and so what by the time I got. By the time I got back for the war, she'd married. <laughs> she was gone. <laughs> yeah, she was gone. <laughs> no, well, I guess uh, I guess uh, you know people weren't expected to to wait back then. Some did, but but some didn't. Yeah, some did, but uh, well, we were infiltrated by the Americans, and they they led the young ladies a good life. You know, they they, they whooped it up, and of course us Aussies, we were just Still battling around on sure in the army or on five shillings a day, which didn't do very much. But that, that that's what was going on. Do you think all the ladies, the ladies uh, were enamoured by the Americans? Were they? Uh, yeah. Well, that was the most disillusioning thing I ever had in my lifetime. Was the way the Australian girls uh, got along with the Americans. Yeah. Jesus, they were all young. We were all young then. The Americans were young too. They had money and we had nothing. And, and yeah, that's just how it was. The story I'm here with the Americans is well known throughout my generation. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about um, you know the era that that led up to the you know you enlisting. Um, obviously. You, you had a sense that trouble was brewing, or did it come as a shock or a surprise? That, no, wait, uh, wait, wait, that, that's how that again. Did you just in the lead up to you enlisting? Um, was there a sense that trouble was brewing, or 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 it came as a bit of a shock and surprise that uh, war broke out? Oh no, we had a pretty good idea. Uh, more, I would say, for 12 months before the war. But I was in a Highland regiment uh, a, in the Cameron Highlanders of Western Australia. I, I joined that as soon as I was 18. I, I just always had a patriotic feeling towards the country. And uh, they were forming up this battalion in the militia. Oh, yes. And I had three years in, in the horse transport section before the war broke out. And then when the war broke out, well, I joined the Australian Imperial Forces, the City of Perth Regiment. So it was just like that. It sounds silly, but we were educated to such an extent in those days that when the war broke out, I couldn't get in the army quick enough because the motherland was in trouble. 
Uh, that's how right. the empire was in those days. And and all the other boys at your age felt the same way? Well, quite a lot of them, yes. Yes, well, the, uh, well we had three divisions uh, in the army, and uh, everyone was a volunteer. There was no conscription. No, but what did your what did your father and and his generation of people have to say about it? Well, they didn't. My dad didn't say very much. I do know that uh, the last uh, evening I had with them, I walked up to the end of the street and they were standing on the footpath watching me go. And I turned around and uh, waved to them and. I was gone, and that they went inside, and I know I found out later that Dad said, poor little bugger, he doesn't know what he's let himself in for, and I think that summed it up. Well, let's, uh, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more, Arthur. I mean, what happened, um, you, you joined up in, in Perth, you're part of um, three, three divisions that went, uh, when did... Um, when did you uh, uh, head off for Europe, or where did you go after, uh, after well, that? Well, uh, actually, at the beginning of the war, they formed up one division, the 6th Division, mm-hmm. and uh, we had fellows here in WA. We had a regiment here, and they transported us across to the eastern states, and we were camped around Greta in that area there, and... Uh, so that we would be with the rest of the division. There was only one division at this stage, and uh, we were then taken back home. We were given leave, and then the convoy that had all the Eastern State soldiers in it came around to Perth, and uh, we all joined up then and went overseas to Palestine. We were in Palestine for about eight months training for desert warfare. And from there, we went up into uh, North Africa, into the battles of Bardia and Tobruk and Derna and things like that. So you, you went over by ship, obviously. And, and, uh, oh, and, yes, yeah. And what, what was that journey? What was that journey like for you when you, when you it and your mates? Wasn't when you... It wasn't the best. It was a, an old troop ship that used to transport British soldiers to India and from India back home to the old country sort of thing. And uh, you slept in hammocks and we were and hang from hooks all around the place. And uh, you're all in 18 men to a mess table. It, was, it wasn't the, the best of conditions for traveling, I can tell you. Uh, but I understand there were some big ships which had been requisitioned and they were still done up as passenger ships and the boys on them had quite a good time, but we had it a bit rugged. Hmm. Right, so, so what kind of friendships did you did you establish back then, um, um, Arthur? Did you... Oh, you made friends that lasted you for the rest of your life. And uh, you get to know each other well. If you've got 30 men in a platoon and you're all training uh, together and relying upon each other, uh, your companionship gets a bit thick. And uh, I, I was in the signal platoon and our responsibility was communication within the battalion. 
and uh, well, you, you you get stuck out in the in the nether never occasionally, and, you, and your mates were there to help you get back again, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. And um, and you went out. Uh, so obviously, the the first port of call, or uh, first first port where you disembarked from the ship was in Palestine. Is that right? Well, we got out at Port Said on the yes. Suez Canal, yes. and transported by train then up into Palestine. And, and what, what did it look like to you when you laid eyes on it for the first time? That era? <laughs> We'd never seen, well, we'd never seen anything like it. The, the fellows that came from Kalgoorlie, they had an idea of what desert country looked like, but uh, us city blokes, no, we, we took a bit of getting used to the fact that people had been living here for thousands of years. That, that's a little bit of accepting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were different. That was bone dry, was it? Yeah, well, it was, that was a bit of a shock, yeah. And uh, a different country, different type of flora, and, uh, well, the animals were different. Never seen so many camels, and things of that nature were uh, quite new to us and quite surprising us from my point of view anyway. So what uh, what role did you play in in uh, in your battalion? What uh, well, what was your specialty? Well, put it this way: in a battalion, you've got three companies, or A, B, C, and D company, four companies of about a hundred men, and you've got your battalion headquarters, mm-hmm. and you've got to communicate, of course, from battalion headquarters to the companies. And that was uh, what signalers were trying to do for communication between the companies and battalion headquarters. And what did you use? Uh, two, two, oh, two we had hands in the street. <laughs> Would you believe we were handed telephone equipment with 1918 branded on it? We were given no. Lucas lamps with 1918 branded on, and we were given. Um, well, we're always short of cable. There's never much cable laying around. And uh, we even had the heliographs. And this is what we're going to fight a modern war with. We're that far behind. It's amazing when you look back. Radios, of course, were, were not uh, common. Well, they were not very efficient anyway. A telephone was um, the uh, idea. Well, a Got it from the first war. We used telephones. Yeah, of course we use them again. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> uh, they, How did they that go for you. <laughs> yeah, well, the manual said you hang the cable up on the hedgerows so that they won't get broken up by vehicles. Well, can you imagine in the desert? There's no <laughs> hedgerows to hang bunny cable on, and of course you lay you, you you lay your cable out to your company, and the next vehicle that comes along puts a wheel on either side of the cable and away she goes and eventually the cable gets buried and chopped up and yeah. you know it, it was a ludicrous whereas modern armies was their radios and they uh, communicate without all this crap what's the what's the what's the heliograph um oh it's after. done by the the rays of the sun on a mirror no 
Yeah, and uh, that's a bit prehistoric. Uh, hmm? That's a bit prehistoric. Oh, yeah, it was a bit, but uh, they had been using them in the British Army for years, therefore they must be the right thing to use. And, uh, well, right. you've got to set them up where the sun can hit the mirror and then you you line up on your person that's going to receive the message and uh, you send Morse code by means of uh, the mirror and the sun's rays. Yeah, right. Right. So when did you actually start to get decent equipment or that, that just didn't, ha- didn't happen? We got most of it when we got the Palestine. Okay. Yeah. So, so tell me tell me what um, what happened there. Like, obviously, you guys were gearing up. The, the army was gearing up for a big, big showdown. Um, did everyone know that what was what was in store for them, or, or um, they kept you guessing? No, we. Oh, I wouldn't say we were kept in the in the uh, kept uh, ignorant of what was going on in the world, but we were in a stationary camp, uh, which had a few buildings around it, like the the wash house and the Toilets, they were all uh, buildings. We lived in tents, at, uh, and uh, we, we knew what was going on in the world, but God, we were ignorant, bloody Australians. We'd lived all our lives in this country. We had no idea what the rest of the world was like. And, uh, and uh, when we used to read the news, we didn't even know where the countries were that they were talking about. Of course, we knew about the Battle of Britain. We knew France had uh, fallen and all that sort of thing. But uh, uh, news was not restricted, but it was a bit vague, put it that way. So you're, you're talking about 1940, is that right, Arthur? Oh, yes, uh, yeah, 1940. Mm. So tell us, uh, tell us what happened when um, when uh, you, you got word that... Um, you were moving again, like the, the whole battalion was moving. What, what, uh, what oh, was well, the story there? They, the uh, Italians were in Libya and they were approaching uh, Egypt. And of course, the German plan was if they could take the Suez Canal, they would come down through, uh, through Greece and uh, block the whole of the Mediterranean off. Anyway, the Italians. Um, Came uh, came through Libya, and um, there was an Indian uh, battalion going to uh, Abyssinia to for um, uh, what's the word garrison duties, and they got stuck into the Italians and rounded up a few thousand of them. So it was decided that we were going to have a go at the Italians, and well, if you read up history, you realise we. We had a, a pretty yeah, good run. Go. We, we, <laughs> we we took Bardia and Tobruk and Benghazi and Derna and and then we were pulled out and sent up into Greece from there because uh, well what had happened uh, the Italians had invaded Yugoslavia, overrun it, and they had entered Greece. And the Greece chased them out of the place, and uh, they looked like 
uh, overcoming the Italians in Yugoslavia. So Germany poured in its troops, and we were sent up there to stop the Germans. But of course, we we never had a hope in hell. We had no aircraft. We, we you know it was, and um, we had little little of anything at that stage of the war. And we were pushed right. Yeah. Sorry, I was just saying, well, how was the mood amongst the Australians? I mean, you guys... Do Sorry, you guys how, did ter- how How was the mood amongst the Australians? You guys did a great job, uh, you know, pushing the Italians back in North Africa, and then you had to deal with... Did you get a chance to deal with the Germans there in North Africa, or, or that you got pulled out before that happened? No, we were pulled out of there before the um, Germans... Uh, came into uh, North Africa, but we did have a division uh, that had come up. It was the second, well, it was was the ninth division from Australia. They took over the defence of Tobruk, and they become the uh, rats of Tobruk. Yes. But they also had South Africans and a lot of, uh, English too. It wasn't just Australians. You know, there's quite a, a uh, various types of troops or nationalities, put it that way. And then, uh, uh, but but we didn't know a great deal about that because we were busy dodging dive bombers and uh, tank attacks and things that in their retreat down through Greece. So, so was it uh, was it disorderly, or everyone was um, still fairly oh, no. organised? No, she was an orderly withdrawal. Oh yes, we um, and uh, we had a few wins there as well, but uh, we never had uh, any chance of holding the Germans back, and we gradually retreated right down, and like. Uh, can't remember where I was, but we had uh, fishing boats take us out to the bigger uh, steam and boats. And uh, what we had on our backs when we climbed up scrambling nets was what we had to fight the next battle with. And wow. we were taken across to a creek. We were dive-bombed all the way. And, uh, uh, well, we had a few bad moments there too, but but we finished up in Sudabay. Hi, it's Gino from Bondi Broker. In today's changing times, the importance of health and financial security has never been more important. At Bondi Broker, we work with you to improve your financial security by offering free financial health checks, assisting in reducing your debt, and gain competitive rates to improve your cash flow. Bondi Broker gets you in the best financial health so you can focus on what matters most. Visit our website today for your free consultation at bondibroker.com.au. It must have been a rough trot to be a young man uh, being dive bombed and being shot at and having and seeing some of your mates um, or people or other people who you didn't know but you saw bodies lying around the place. Yeah, what was that? How did how did most blokes? How did you and most blokes deal with that? Well, the sh- the shock of it, when you're in a battle and the, sh- the shock of the moment doesn't really come on to you until it's all over. You know, you're, you're busy. You're, you're, you don't 
well, you know, someone's hurt or someone's dead, gone, but uh, there's not much you can do. You've got your hands full where you are anyway. So you and, just uh, got to you got absorbed you got absorbed in the moment and the job you had to do, and you didn't really think about it. Is that is that how it went down? That's it. You're involved in the whatever your commitment is, and it's not until it is all over that you you well you realise the horror of it all. So tell us a little bit about Crete. I mean, Crete was a a major a major offensive by the Germans. I mean, they they it was an airborne attack. As far as I can recall, um, and uh, the the Australians and I think there were some Kiwis there as well. They 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 didn't have really much to go on, did they? They didn't have much in the way of weapons. No, that's right. As I said, what we had on our backs was what we where we climbed up the scrambling nets onto the ships and uh, leaving Greece. Well, that's what we had to fight the next battle with. And, uh, so, so it must have. So, did it feel demoralising that the Germans were um, continually, you know, winning and pushing you, pushing you back and pushing you back? No, I, I wouldn't say we're demoralised at any time. The idea, well, we say, here's the bastards, get stuck into them. Uh, <laughs> there was, yeah. Well, what could you do? And, uh, well, what did what did the Australians think of the Germans? Like, what did they? Um, what what were your mate? What was your general attitude towards them? Well, they were the enemy, and you had to destroy them. I'm afraid. It's, again, it's not until years later that you sit down and you think that that was some mother's son, it was some kid's dad. You know, but it goes your way too. You you lose men in your battalion who were mm. some mother's son. It, it, it's a well, it's a shitty situation to be in, but you're in it, and you got to make your way out as best you can. That's and, right. Uh, the the way out is well, fight. Yeah. So what happened? What happened then at um, in at, in Crete? You got to Crete. Uh, whereabouts were you uh, were you located? Um, and well, what happened? We we arrived at Suda Bay. Of course, we were scattered all sorts everywhere, but we gradually assembled the battalion what, uh, at Suda Bay, and we marched uh, uh, eastward up through Georgiopolis and uh, to uh, Retamo. This this is our battalion I'm talking about now. Right, right. And and uh, we took up there was, used to be an airstrip at Retamo. Uh, there are hills, uh, uh, terraced hillsides uh, covered in olive trees that overlook the airstrip. They overlook a strip of flat land, and then there's the sea. Yes. So we were up in these terraced olive groves. We, yes. we were dug in, and uh, we'd been there for oh, best part of a month, slowly starving to death, but that's beside the point. And we we were in a pretty quick way. Our uniforms had been well battered, and we'd had them all the way from north through North Africa and Greece. And uh, our equipment wasn't too good at all. But anyway, we dug slit trenches looking out to sea and covering this airstrip. 
and um, we were there quite some time. I think it was the best part of a month. And uh, then the paratroopers came in about four o'clock in the afternoon. They had been dropping up at Melamie Aerodrome, and uh, that was their main target to take that aerodrome. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, expand the battle from there, but they also landed paratroopers up at Heraklion yeah. uh, later in the day uh, to take that town and that port and then about four o'clock in the afternoon they attacked this strip uh, that I'm talking about that we were overlooking, which is slightly west of Retomo Mm-hmm. And um, they dropped about 2,000 paratroopers here in the afternoon. And well, by 9 o'clock that night, we had about 500 of them left in a nearby village of Caravolia, I think it is. And uh, they hung out there. Well, we made many attacks there altogether. We, we, we lost uh, over 50 or 60 men there. And. Uh, we, uh, they, they, they were very good soldiers. They knew what they were doing. They fortified the village anyway, and we had no hope. Of, we we bottled them up, but we couldn't overcome them, and we lost quite a few men trying to do that. And in due course, down the Malamy end of the island had uh, mm-hmm. become overrun, and the, and they just swept through the whole island then and. It, capitulated. Yeah, so you were caught out um, in the end. I mean, when the when the paratroopers came, um, uh, Arthur, uh, were they? Did they just? You were watching them just drop to the ground from a from a from a fair distance. Is that right? So no one was no one was shooting at them. Obviously, at that point. Well, <laughs> as soon as they got within rifle range, everyone was taking I, I, a shot. I'm afraid. Well, our attitude was, well, the bastards were looking for fight. And we, uh, oh, we shot quite, oh, it was just terrible. But, right, we, we attacked the aircraft before they even got the, got to the drop zone. We were at, uh, up in these terraced olive groves. And uh, some of the planes come in at uh, eye level. And, oh, really? Uh, well, yeah, well, we were up in the overlooking yes, strap, yeah, and uh, I know that they were throwing dead men out to get out themselves, put it that way, and uh, and of course they're the enemy. Once they land, you attack because mm. you know the they're not going to have fighter aircraft spraying the place. It, it could hit their own men, and well. It was a nasty show, as I say. They dropped about 2,000, and we had about 500 of them in this village where they hung out and until um, the island capitulated. So you, you tried to take you tried to take the village, couldn't do it, but the but the island capitulated in the well, meantime. Well, the idea was if we could overcome that village, we could attack the other enemy from the rear. But it was that village was a key point. Yeah, right. So uh, if they 
if the Germans got through to the village and reinforced it, they could attack us. And if we overcome it, we could reinforce what troops we had down the other end of the island. But anyway, it didn't work out that way. And and uh, we were told the island had capitulated and it was every man for himself. Well, behind Retamo, there's a range of mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, quite a few of us scrambled up over these mountains overnight and landed on the other side of the island on the beach. I don't, can't remember the name of the beach, but there would be several hundred of us there. And we hung out for a week, but we ran out of water. We ran out of food. We thought that they might send in a, a ship to take us off the beach, you see. Yeah. But it didn't work out that way. And then one day... Uh, Installed a German officer with an interpreter, and he said, "Well, we got machine guns up there, we got trench mortars over there, and so on." He says, "One fight you can have it, but we suggest you you come in and save your lives." So, uh, well, what could we do? We had no arms, we had nothing. It was, and they had won the island by then. We were. Well, we, we could have been classified as bandits if they wanted it to. And so we were rounded up like sheep. And uh, well, you just, over the next you just... few days, we were marched right around to the west end of the island, back down through Ritamo and all the way into uh, Malaby Civilian Jail. Oh, they put you in the in the civilian jail with all the other with all the other prisoners, yeah? Well, there wasn't many prisoners there, I must admit there was only one or two, but they were murderers apparently, but that's beside the point. The thing is of course they had no no uh, provision of how to supply or look after prisoners of war. They just put them where they could put them for the time being. And, uh, okay, so so you did you 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 were constantly thirsty and starving as well. Oh God, yes, we went downhill. Yeah, yes, you got very weak, and uh, when uh, but from uh, there, eventually we were all shoved into uh, coal barges and taken all the way up by water to uh, Salonica, and they mm-hmm. had a a camp there. Well, Salonica. I understand, had been occupied by the Turks or someone for 500 or 600 years. Yeah. And there was old dilapidated barracks there, and they put up a big barbed wire fence all around it and shoved us all in there. There we were. There was no windows, no doors, nothing. And you just slept on a tiled floor, and you were starved. I know I'd reached a stage where I couldn't just stand up. I had to crawl to the wall. and climb up the wall if I wanted to go anywhere. And uh, wow. it was a bit grim. Mm. Wow. And, of course, there were no toilet facilities or anything like that, Arthur. You just had to make do. Is that right? Yeah, well, there, were, there was holes in the ground, uh, old Turkish-type squat-down toilets. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and uh, out there, but there was no washing facilities. There was a cap in one corner which was turned on for a few hours of the day and you'd have a, a line of men, 400 men in line with little billy cans or anything to get water. Well, 
you might get to the water tap before it was turned off. Things were pretty rough there, yeah. Pretty rough, but, uh, but everyone was uh, experiencing uh, <laughs> similar deprivations. Yeah. Uh, so so where did you, I mean, you didn't stay there very long, obviously, or did you stay there for, for the re- remainder of the war? No, no, we, we were there about, oh, I can't remember, a month to six weeks, something like that. And we were slowly, all slowly going downhill. But anyway, one day they gave us a round loaf of bread and two tins of bully beef, their German bully beef. And so that's your rations for six days. And they marched us down to the railways and they bunged us in those trucks that everyone's seen on the TV. There was 40 men to a wagon. And they slammed the door shut, and there we were for six days and six nights while they drove us up into Germany. And, and no, one had, no one had the thought of, uh, of escaping at that point, or you were all too well, weak you, to you, even think about it? You were locked up in a, one of those cattle trucks arrangements. There was no way right. out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, well, I know... Uh, we had a few problems. There was only one little window with a bit of barbed wire over it, but you had 40 men in the carriage with no toilet facilities, nothing. You were just animals. And, well, some of the boys had diarrhea, dysentery, and so on. And you'd well, leave them you leave them a billy can or some tin you might have, and they'd manage to poke it through this barbed wire over the window and tip it out. And that would get caught up in the slipstream of the train and go blow all over the guard. Oh. It was at the end of And the next carriage, next time the train stopped in the siding, they'd slam the doors opening, come half a dozen guards, push you all up one end of the carriage and then belt and bash each other and throw you up the other end again. And, uh, well, after a few treatments like this, you, I know... I was that well. I was that ill. I honestly thought I was going to die with starvation and and uh, bashings. And, and I thought, well, I, I just don't want to live anymore. I've had enough. But that was the night that we pulled into the big prisoner of war camp, and the door slammed open. We told to get out. Well, I sat on the floor. The idea was to jump down onto the ground, but. I did. I landed on the ground, bang, and I couldn't stand up. I remember looking up at a guard snarling at me, and he had a dog in his hand that was snarling at me. And anyway, a couple of my mates picked me up and put an arm around their neck, and the three of us staggered into this camp. And we weren't the only ones like that. The whole bloody train was like it. Now, and then, and then, uh, hopefully, they 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 gave you some food and water at that stage. Oh, well, it was a big camp. We were put in barracks for the night. But next day, we were all um, registered. Now, there's a bit there. As I said, the Germans were signatories of the international or or the Geneva Conventions. And they had to account for prisoners of war. And... so next day we were registered, and from there onwards the Germans had to account for us. But up until that point, well, they can 
machine gun a whole bloody lot of us, and no one would have known what had happened. We were showered. We were all our hair was cut off us, and uh, we were showered. We were given clean uh, clothing. It was a conglomeration of uniforms for every nation they'd conquered. But there again, in due course, through the International Red Cross, we were completely equipped with British Army clothing, boots, socks, long john underpants, shirts, singlets, everything, a uniform, an overcoat. Really? We, and we got a food parcel once a fortnight. But this didn't happen immediately. This happened about three months later. Right. So, what did um, what did you have to contend with? Uh, you know, day in day out in this prisoner of war camp. I mean, that, I mean, which year can you remember the date you actually ended up in this this camp? No, I can't remember all those dates. No, that's just a bit fine. But we were eventually sent into Munich. They had POW camps in Munich that held about five hundred men. And they uh, were oh, small. Oh, well, these are, they, no, the original camp held thousands of men. Mm. But we were eventually sent to Munich and put in camps of about 500 men spread all around the city. There wasn't just one camp, there was camps of about 500 British spread around the city of Munich. Right, from, right. From there, you went out into work parties to different organisations, and the number that went out uh, depended on what the particular firm required just for their needs. Oh, so you worked? You you had to go out and work in the factories of uh, of the Reich. Yeah. Well, they were non. Um, what do we say? Not non war, none, no war equipment. I was the gang I was with. There was twenty of us. We worked for the town assault works, laying roads, yeah. getting the tar and pictures and blue metal ready for laying on the roads. There was other gangs in a, in a sort of a road board set up where they were digging trenches and. Uh, mm. Uh, different organisations, so uh, that's what we were doing around Munich, anyway. And uh, were they were they treating you um, pretty harshly, uh, uh, Arthur, or at, uh, how how, look, how did life pan out? Well, as I've said often, I've met some fine fine Germans in my day, and the people in Munich are just marvellous people. They treated you as an equal. You were just a soldier that had a bit of bad luck in your prisoner war, and they 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 treated us mostly leniently. But uh, this went on for about eighteen months. We were in Munich. Then uh, the uh, RAF started to drop bombs on the place, and the Germans had to move us out according to the Geneva Conventions. Again, they had to. Uh, take all prisoners of war out of the danger zone. So we were set right up in the pole and the work of the coal mines out of the road. Wow. 
you know, I mean, you, you obviously must have felt the tide was turning. I mean, what was the um, attitude of the Germans at the time, the, the guards, when, when they knew that um, the, the, the things were turning for them? Now, well, the guards that we had, of course, were a lot of them were blokes who'd been in the First War, too. And they'd had, right. a guts full of, they'd had a guts full of wars and everything, and they just weren't interested. And when you get men um, around 40 years of age doing two hours on and four hours off week after week, they get a bit uh, disgusted with the whole show, too. And uh, we uh, we got on well with the guards. After a while, you get to know their Christian name and their, whether they're married and how many kids they've got. And, uh, it was uh, just one of those things. But where you pile them, where the hell are you going to go if you did escape? <laughs> yes. So not many men did. Did Not many no. men thought of it. No, you couldn't. No. And, uh, yeah. But wow. eventually, eventually uh, the Russians started their big drive in 1945, and we were in the road. And in the winter of 1944, they marched us 800 kilometres right across Europe uh, in the worst winter in 50 years. And that got a bit rugged, but we eventually finished up back in Bavaria. And uh, we were liberated by Patton's armoured division. Well, wow, that was. Um, describe that day, Arthur. Describe <laughs> that day when they came. Oh, the Americans. Well, yeah. Well, we I mean, were what did the Germans a, do? Well, all right. Well, we were in a big barn, uh, full of hay, bales of hay. We'd made. We'd been there over a week, and we'd made ourselves quite comfortable, actually. And then one day, the guard commander said, "Well, we're going to leave you here. Uh, you'll stay in the barn for a few days because the." Germans coming back, he said, they're nasty. He said, they could set fire to the barn, so just keep your head in. So we did. And uh, we were down in a hollow with a, a gravel road going up to a bitumen road passing by uh, adjacent to this barn. And one day, one of the blokes said, there's, there's tanks going past. He says, they've got crosses on them. I think they're Russian. Another bloke had a look, he said, no, he said, they're American. Oh, Jesus, they were, were liberated. So, and while we're sitting there, um, down this gravel track, there's three jeeps come down, packed with GIs, and they jumped out, spread out, and the bloke with two stripes on his hat, he um, comes up to the barn door and throws it open and looks around. And they said, okay, you guys, you're all free. And instead of everyone cheering and shouting, a quiet Australian voice said, where the bloody hell are you blokes been? We've been waiting for you. <laughs> so he just waved his head in a circle around his head and the whole lot of them disappeared up the track again. So we were free. Oh, that, that didn't mean much free. Where would you? Where did you go? Like, where would you? What well, plan did you? We split up a bit. Then we wandered around. Um, there was a group of about ten of us. We took off together. Um, 
and we finished up on Regensburg Aerodrome, and we were told to assemble there, which we did do. And um, this aerodrome was quite a big place. It must have been quite an, an administrative aerodrome because they had a big dining hall and big soup kitchens. Or, and uh, these soup kitchens or, or cafeteria kitchens had uh, containers they would be about four feet or five feet long. They'd be or three feet deep. Must be for making the soup. And anyway, we filled them up with water, broke up the office furniture, a little fire under it, and we huh. all had a nice bath. And, oh, this was lovely. You, you'd, you'd be in one of these baths with your mate. You'd be scrubbing your back for you because the filth would be in half an inch stick on your body. You know? wow. And then when, when you finished that, you'd grab all your gear and throw that in and pummel that about and then spread it out on the tarmac outside and sit around the nutty until it all dried again. <laughs> so, so what what uh, so what did you do with the filling your time? There wasn't much to do, right? You were just sat oh, hanging just, around? Well, no, we were free though, but we knew we were gonna be flown out of a place mm. and uh, I'm I'm in charge of twenty men. Not because uh, I got the authority, but I'd raided the office and I had paper and pens that I could write with. And oh, this suited me. I just loved writing. So and suddenly they, they probably blacked you. Well, well, you're in charge of 20 men. We want you all in 20. And uh, we want their names in triplicate, I think it was. So anyway, here I am with this group of 20 men. And we're taken out to um, the. Uh, the end of an airstrip, and uh, not just where the aerodrome is, but right out the far end of the airstrip. And at the end of this airstrip, there's a pommy, there's a pommy army table there, and a, and a form, and there's a pommy corporal sitting there. And, and at the end of this table, there was six foot two of all British tradition, all these little brass buttons shone. And, the pits on his shoulder were glistening in the sunlight, and he looked <laughs> immaculate. And anyway, I saw we'd been marched across Europe in three months, and our uniforms, although we got them clean, they were they were ragged and so on. And I saw up to this bloke and hold out one of these sheets, and he says, "Yes." I said, "Well, list the names." Yes. And I said, "What's wrong with this bastard?" Finally, it dawned on me. I said, list the name, sir. Thank you. And he gives it the corporal. And uh, the <laughs> corporal says, uh, group 20, sir. Uh, that plane over there, he says, pointing to a Ever Lancaster, which was manned by an Australian group. We go over there, and it's called the Ham Cram Spam Special. I'll, I'll never forget that bit of it. The boys all got inside, and the pilot said, get them up the front over the wing area. And I'm the last bloke in, being in charge, of course. And the door <laughs> shut, not on, hanging onto the side of the plane underneath the turret gunner. And uh, I don't much, know much about flying, but anyway, she trundled out to the, to the takeoff point at the end of the airstrip and give her the gun. And I know the tail lifts up, and then the plane takes off. 
but the plane lift up, they went across to the left, across to the right, and up a bit. I don't like this. And bang, it hit the deck. The whole bloody plane did. And I found out later, of course, a wheel had come off. So the pilot wound the other wheel up and sat her down on the airstrip and turned on the fire extinguisher on the motors. And there we were, hanging on, being smashed and bashed and torn to pieces all the way down the airstrip. And uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the uh, emergency truck turns up and, well, put the whole lot under foam, of course, and uh, we're taken in a truck back to the end of the airstrip where there's this poppy bloke with his table and his corporal and so I stroll up and I'm awake to him now, of course. This is the name, sir. Thank you. And he gives it the corporal, group 20 corporal. And so they've gone. And this bloke looked me up and down as there was just so much rubbish that had blown across his feet or something. And he says, you've gone. So, well, yeah, I said, but look, you see that heap of stuff right down the far end. I said, we're just going to have a wrap. Oh, he says, you can't do that. He says, what about my books? Well, it had been <laughs> four years defying authority, and I told him what to do with these books. And we all got back in the truck and went back to the hangars where the Air Force was celebrating VE Day 1. And uh, we're having a good time there. And in comes a bloke with a long uh, arm full of rings and bits and pieces. I don't know what his rank was, but... And after a few beers, he said, oh, what are you blokes doing here? So we told him. Oh, he said, oh, I'll get you out of here. He says, not that we don't like your company, but we, the beer is very scarce. He said, I've got to get city set to save it. And, and we put in <laughs> another Avro Lancaster and flown to England. And that was the end of it all. So the upshot. The upshot for you then, um, Arthur, what was your summation of your time, your your time spent, you know, fighting well, the Germans and then and then putting up with five years of that? Well, on this march across bloody Europe, mm. we, as I say, we got to know the, we started off as prisoners of war and guards, but we finished up a conglomeration of humanity trying to exist. We got to know the guards, as I told you, their names, their family, and where they come from, and every other bloody thing. But suddenly you're free. All right, the German side of us finished. You walk away from it. Mind mm -hmm. you, we're all, uh, what do I say, full of the excitement of being free, and you, 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 you don't think of anything else. But I'm free, you think, of this moment. Mm -hmm. You don't think of the past. You're not too sure of the future. You think of this moment and live that way. And and eventually, obviously, you you made your way back to Australia um, somehow. Or you, yeah. You would have, oh, yeah, we'd you... come back in trip. I managed to stay in England three months, actually. Uh, right. With a bit of smart work and a bit of conniving. and uh, <laughs> so That wasn't you, was it? That's yeah, not you. <laughs> yeah, oh, you get good at that after four years in the prisoner war camp. And uh, yeah, I stayed in England three months, and, and then eventually they found out I was still there, and they put me on a troop ship and sent me home. And on that ship, I met the pilot of the plane that, that 
conquered out in Brussels. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it uh, That's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so I'm rushing around with a, a life jacket and a cup of tea, mm-hmm. and I stopped and I said to him, I said, you're on this boat, I'm not going anywhere without this life jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we sat down and had quite a yarn. Yeah. Well, then, then you got back home after, and I think, um, I think uh, you would have just had a, a bit of time to think uh, on the boat. Obviously, to, to think about what you uh, wanted to do with yourself. Do you have any idea, or you just went with the flow? Well, not not a great deal. I knew I wanted to make a living. I had to uh, settle down and get a job because I'd met a charming young lady in England and we were going to be married and uh, so I I went back to the firm that I left back to the structural steel firm but oh, yes. over, and uh, anyway Eileen came out, we married we settled down but I found out that uh, I was allergic to work so uh, I went back to night school and uh, <laughs> uh, studied a bit and uh, or I finished up getting uh, an office job in, in an office. Hmm. Lovely, lovely. So, so, uh, so, what did you end up? What did you end up uh, doing for for a living? Um, oh, I was working for a firm that was dealing with. Um, well, when they're opening up the the northwest of Western Australia, all the iron ore work opening mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this firm used to supply equipment to to that sort of uh, area, you know, mining. And whenever they got a contract, it was handed to me and I had to keep control of it from with our principals from the eastern states and keep uh, control of the whole thing until the goods were delivered and uh, could be invoiced for. Yeah, right. You know, I had a typist, I had a secretary, and it was a bit good. Yeah. So... So reflecting, reflecting on on uh, your time since I was just, uh, you know, when I when I with one of our previous conversations, Arthur, I realised that you were almost you're almost retired for as many years as you worked. Um, <laughs> just reflect yeah, on it's a great reflect idea. on how it's been. Yeah. <laughs> just reflect on on how 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 it's been for you uh, since. Um, since your your time um, in the war, uh, how life has panned out for you, and how your family how your family's probably you probably outlived a lot of your your family members. Uh, yes, well, I I'm the the last of my mum and dad's family. Put it that way: mum and dad, the brother and two sisters. They've all gone. Right. So. Uh, there it is, but now when I look back, I, oh, I've, I've been in the in the manure quite often, but uh, the last, oh, well, the last thirty, forty years have been pretty kind to me. Hmm. It's very lovely. So, how, how do you how do you spend your days now, Arthur? Um, well, I try and keep alert. Um, you know, not not. Not boasting, you asked the question. I'm still the president of the Ex-Prisoners of War Association of WA, and uh, I'm associated with uh, Mount Bawley Senior High School, and uh, they have a couple of wards 
but in my name, and they'd be kind enough to name the school library after me. So I'm quite active there. I'm a member of the Bush Poets and Yarn Spinners Association, and uh, I write right. some poetry and, and uh, little things like that. Yeah, I fill in my time. Not very active, but, uh, you know, I fill in my time. Now, poetry's been with you since you were a since you were a kid, uh, I guess uh, I guess you've developed a skill, uh, Arthur. So you're you're pretty good at it. Yeah. Wait a minute. What was that? What? I said I said poetry has been with you oh. since you were a kid. Your love of poetry. Yes, I've uh, always loved that. Yeah. Yeah. We had a you, good you, English teacher. Mm. Right. Right. So your your skill is you're pretty good at it. Well, I wouldn't say I'm pretty good. I'm no different to a lot of other fellows in the Bush Poets uh, Association. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe in that case, Arthur, we could end with um, with one of your favourite poems. That'd be great. Oh hell. Oh. Um, all right. you, you, yeah. Well, who were you? Who were your favourite? Who, uh, who were your favourite poets? Oh, Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, of course. Mm. Oh, of course, legends. But there are several others too that write good poetry. And, and uh, well, if you want one of mine to finish off. That'd be great. Yes, Arthur. Yep, that'd be great, right. Arthur. I, I, I wrote a poem called uh, Me Horse's Name is Rosemary. They sling muck at me round the shear and shed. They say I'm just a bit queer. I talk a lot to myself, it seems, and I got this cauliflower ear. Got a fighting the heavyweight champ down the city years ago. So I dodge their jibes and I quietly smile, because I know, oh yes, I know the power behind a good straight left and a right cross to the jaw, and your legs fold up beneath you and you're laying in sweat on the floor. I was having a quiet beer one day in a pub where I liked to go. I'd lost another flaming fight and was running out of dough. And this joker sits at my table and he buys me another beer. And I think to myself, now watch him, mate. He's acting a little bit queer. He's wearing S.R. Williams boots. His jeans are cut to style. His shirt would cost a quid or two, and his hat sticks out a mile. He said, you're just a punching bag. They're slowly killing you. Come up and work at my place, a day's drive north of Kew. So I chucked my gear and my old Ford Ute, and I hope the tires will do, as I set up north to find this place, a day's drive north of Kew. The boss was waiting for me. I don't know how he knew. Said something called Bush Telegraph. They use it north of Kew. He said, you'll give the cook a hand at shearing time, of course. Now, let's go to the stockyard, introduce you to your horse. What's her name, I asked him. He stopped and shook his head. Uh... We don't have names for all of them. There's quite a few, he said. 
there's buckers, there's kickers, there's snorters, there's some that go on strike, and some that work their guts out. You, you can call her what you like. I remembered this beautiful Sheila in a film I went to see. So I gave me horse the lady's name, and her name is Rosemary. Now when we're bringing the sheep in, been in the saddle all day, covered in sweat and stink like a horse, and the shed's two days away. I remember that musical picture, and I sing its famous song. Then get around behind the sheep to move the mob along. And me horse pricks up her pretty ears and moves about real steady. She knows her name is Rosemary, and I sing like Nelson Eddy. There you are. That's what it was. Awesome. That was fantastic, Arthur. Well, beautiful. Beautiful. Arthur, I was going to say, mate, uh, the, the, the Bush Park uh, Society is uh, well served with you. Without a yeah, doubt. That's nice. Thank you. Arthur, we wanted to thank you for your time, Arthur. Thank, thank you, for, Arthur, for, for recounting your your the story of your life, and and uh, and it's been a real honour. It has. I tell you what, what what's your home address? Uh, oh, in Darlinghurst, or no, or uh, no, what, now what, while we're on my favourite subject, which yep. happens to be me, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I, I've written a book, that's all, and I thought I'll send you a copy. That'd oh, be, that'd be lovely, that'd Arthur. Be great, Arthur. We'll, we'll, we'll send you. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll do. Do you want us to? We'll send it to you via email, or I'll ring it through to you if that's okay. No, uh, yeah, all right. Ring it. Send it by email. Okay, that'd be yes. great. Yes, Arthur. Arthur. Yeah. Thank you very thank much, you. Arthur. We really thank you very much it. for your time, Arthur. I hope you enjoy uh, watching the sunset tonight with another glass of fine red. <laughs> All right, I'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Thanks, I, can, I can work on it with you. you right, Take care, Arthur. Good on you. It's nice to hear from you. Take care, Thank Arthur. You. Take care. Good luck. Thank you. Right, All the best to you too, my friend. Thank Bye-bye. you.
that small cafe, the park across the way, the children's carousel, the chestnut trees, the wishing well. I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day, in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you that way. I'll find you in the morning sun, and when the night is new, I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you.